You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you further. You step forward little by little, not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls, calls you to enter in to deeper waters. Everyone and welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast. I am Nick Peters, your host, seeking to bring you the very best in Christian scholarship and apologetics. And today we're talking about a rather amusing topic: conspiracy theories. Many of us know someone on Facebook or somewhere else that loves to share all these stories about all these cover-ups and such going on. And are these really the things we should be sharing? Can we do any harm? And is there... What is the truth about these things? Who are the Illuminati? What is the New World Order? Questions like that. Well... In order to answer these, I've decided to bring on my ministry partner, J.P. Holding, who's written a book about this called uh, Jesus is a Mushroom and Other Lies You Won't Believe. Now, he, his name is James Patrick Holding. He's president of Tectona Apologetics Ministries. He holds a master's degree in library science and has written articles for Christian Research Journal and the Creation Ex Nihilo Technical Journal. And I usually call him J.P. So, uh, J.P., welcome back to the Deeper Waters Podcast. Hi, Nick. Good to be back with you again. Yep. Now, you've been on here a few times before, and you've researched a lot of very interesting topics in your lifetime, but uh, how did this come up? Because you're now on Facebook seeing all these things going on, so how did you get caught up in conspiracy theories? Yeah, it's not limited to Facebook, obviously. Uh, (laughs) This particular example, um, some years ago, Someone contacted me about a series being done by someone named Mark Fairley, who uh, claims to be a Christian, mm-hmm. and he was promoting conspiracy theories. Mm-hmm. And this person said to me, I'd sure like for you to look into what this guy is saying and refute it because it's really bothering me. And mm-hmm. so I, though I'd never dealt with conspiracy theories before, I took it on as a new challenge and I started examining Fairley's material and researching his claims. And I found very little that was correct, but it also was a very interesting topic. And so I started looking more in depth into it. And I started by creating an ebook uh, responding to Fairley's series. And his series is called Know Your Enemy. Mm-hmm. I made a, an ebook response and a video series response. And I took that response and modified it somewhat and added some more material and turned that into the book that you referenced about uh, Jesus was a mushroom and other lies you won't believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, so ever since then, you know, it's been just a side topic of mine, and every once in a while I'll hear something new. But by now I found that claims about conspiracy theories so lack in evidence that there's really nothing to them. You know, let's be clear what we're talking about when we're talking about a conspiracy theory, because there are real conspiracies out there. 9-11 was a conspiracy. Watergate was a conspiracy. So, I mean, this isn't saying our conspiracies are bogus, but what exactly are we talking about? 
Okay. Yeah, certainly we're not talking about just any conspiracy at all being bogus. Uh, what we're talking about is the kind of conspiracy that's suggested where rather than having evidence to show that there's a conspiracy, you start with the point of view that there must be a conspiracy going on because that seems to be the best explanation or because you're looking for some explanation that you can't otherwise come up with. Mm-hmm. And then you either take what little evidence there is and, and interpret it a certain way in order to create a conspiracy by adding suppositions that have mm-hmm. no evidence or just starting with no evidence at all uh, just mm-hmm. or, or rely most common of all these days. And this is what happens on Facebook is people relying on other conspiracy theorists and simply believing what they have to say. Mm-hmm. Now I, we've had uh, shows on here before on Jesus mythicism, which you've done a lot with. And I've said that's a conspiracy theory for atheists. Does that seem like an accurate idea? <laughs> I would say that that works well as a conspiracy theory for atheists with the uh, with the caveat that, of course, they're putting it way back into history and mm-hmm. starting as far back as the first century. Right. And then in some cases claiming that there's a conspiracy among modern scholars to hide the truth. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, to a certain extent, <laughs> and depending on the commentator, yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah, but what's really the harm for Christians in this? I mean... So, so we share a few false ideas. I mean, everyone gets some things wrong. No one bats a thousand and such. What's the big deal? Well, the big deal is, first of all, that uh, conspiracy theories tend to become addictive. And mm-hmm. once people find them in one place, they'll tend to find them in other places. And they will also adjust their lives accordingly. Uh, to use the modern example, many people think that... Uh, the 9-11 disaster was a conspiracy, not of the type you're referring to, where several Islamic terrorists got together and planned it, mm-hmm. but they believe that the U.S. government is involved in that. What makes you think this is a conspiracy, that the government's involved? What makes you think it isn't? Now, if you believe that the U.S. government helped plan the 9-11 disaster, then you're in a place where you're not trusting your government to do anything, and you're mm-hmm. going to see all kinds of other problems and other services provided by the government. You might think that the military is in on some conspiracy to uh, govern the world, or you might yeah. think that you know, there's, there are death camps being run by the government in some location. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this changes how we live our lives, and this changes how people live their lives who believe in these theories. And I would say, in general, that they become much less effective, much less productive as citizens. And certainly as Christians, if we're believing that there are conspiracies behind various things, we're directing wasted energy towards uh, believing in these conspiracies and acting out on them. Yeah, I think I'd also add in that we already believe some things that to the rest of the world can be, to an extent, understandably odd to believe that God became a man and died and rose again. And why should they take that claim seriously when we present a claim just as seriously oftentimes that they can refute just with some basic looking up and such? Well, certainly the critical element of conspiracy is not necessarily how odd things sound, although odd-sounding things are critical to many conspiracies. Some of the things claimed by conspiracies can be completely mundane. They can be just uh, an idea that the military is doing a certain operation in a certain place and they're hiding it well. Mm -hmm. And that's something that the military is perfectly capable of doing. Yeah. Uh, But it's not a question of how odd the claim is. It's a question of like what the purpose is in doing these things. I mean, is it some secret thing that they're trying to accomplish a purpose that they don't want others to know about? Yeah. That is what lies at the heart of a conspiracy in this case. Mm-hmm. 
And I noticed that, uh, I mean, you and I are both Orthodox preterists, but I noticed that a lot of our brothers and sisters who are futurists seem to get really caught up in a lot of these conspiracy theories. Do you think there's a correlation there? Uh, to the extent that it reflects a certain desire, yes, because many who stand for this typical dispensational view of a rapture, uh, they, uh, they have a coming antichrist, the idea of some kind of government conspiracy or other conspiracy fits very well with the idea that Satan and the Antichrist are working behind the scenes to implement uh, some of these horrible things and these uh, terrible conspiracies, mm-hmm. uh, or at very least taking advantage of them uh, instead of being actually behind them personally. Mm-hmm. So certainly that sort of thinking lends itself to a welcoming of conspiracy theories, Obviously, a preterist would not be immune to them, but they have yeah. le- that's one less reason for them to want to believe in them, certainly. Yeah. And when someone encounters a claim, like say they're browsing on Facebook, just going through a feed, and they see a claim and they're not sure about it, what steps do you recommend they take to research that claim? Wow. Yeah. Well, there's when I researched that uh, Jesus was a mushroom book, uh, I had to go through multiple different kinds of books. There was, there's no, that's one reason why I wrote that book, because there was no single book that I could find that covered all these conspiracy theories. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to have some kind of source where everything was in one place. But to just give you an example of you know, how far you have to reach to get answers on some of these things, because they're, these are things that people don't ordinarily come up with. I mean, who in the world would think some of these crazy ideas just you know, immediately... And then, and then someone posts them, and that's when it becomes an urgent need to look up. And just to give you an example, there is a conspiracy theory behind the design of the Israeli Supreme Court building in Tel Aviv. Mm. In order to debunk that, I had to dig out this very obscure book by an architect uh, that was discussing the design of that building. And you, that's a very hard, that was a very hard-to-find book. Mm. Uh, and... That's the only book I could find that had most of the answers I needed to debunk that conspiracy theory. Mm-hmm. So there, there's, it's not it's not a simple process, and that's what makes another thing that makes conspiracy theories so dangerous. It's because they're very hard to research and debunk. Yeah. It's very easy to make a conspiracy claim. You can throw anything in the air, say the Israeli Supreme Court building is filled with symbols that are occult. Well, how do you look that up? How do you get inside the mind of the architects of that building? Yeah. <laughs> it's very hard to do. Yeah, I think this can explain also why so many people who are New Testament scholars can have a hard time debating someone who's, say, a mythicist, for instance. It's not because the arguments are so powerful. It's because they're so bizarre and esoteric that these aren't the kinds of arguments that you regularly encounter. Oh, absolutely. And since you drew that parallel, let's give an example of that. Uh, The claim that the pagan deity Mithra was crucified and rose from the dead. Uh Uh, Many of the books that are about Mithra until very recently uh, have been very obscure and very hard to get. You can't find them anywhere except maybe at some college libraries. Mm -hmm. Uh, They're generally not available online, even at this late date. And to go and dig them out is a great task for many people. Uh, they certainly don't have the time or the ability to go you know, digging around for these obscure books. And so that makes it hard to debunk a conspiracy theory, not because the arguments are difficult to refute or because the evidence points in the direction of favoring the conspiracy theorist, 
but simply because it involves a lot of legwork. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm thinking one of the questions I always ask when I encounter these things is, one that I often ask around here a lot, because sometimes Allie would be browsing through and she'll read some interesting news story, and I'll immediately answer with one word. Source? <laughs> of course. Yeah. <laughs> and that's just it. I mean, the source is usually my own mind or otherwise some other conspiracy theorist. Right. And often when I dug back into some of those claims like about Mithra, Mm-hmm. Uh, you found that they, there was, the source was some 16th century freethinker who didn't give any source. But the, the material gets traded up and up and up the ladder over time mm-hmm. until you never know where exactly it came from and you never know where they got the idea. And the same thing can adhere to conspiracy theories. Mm-hmm. The final mm-hmm. source may be some obscure website somewhere started by someone with a mental disorder, for all we know. Yeah. And I'm thinking also at this can be applied as well to research you've done on, say, Christmas and Easter, and I'm hoping for Halloween sometime, with people saying holidays are pagan, holidays are pagan, and most of them haven't even bothered to look into it. Absolutely. Uh, that, that, that is certainly the case. Just thinking of Christmas offhand, uh, so many of those legends and, and ideas of symbols being pagan come from either uh, you know, others who say had said the same thing with no source work, or it came from misinterpretations of prior ideas. Mm-hmm. Uh, some, some idea that, well, just because the pagans happen to use a piece of holly in a, in a ceremony, that means every use of holly is going to be associated with paganism. Yeah. Um, it, it's, either, it's either a wrong fact or it's an excessive interpretation of a fact is where a lot of these conspiracy theories come from. You know, this gets us to another danger thing that Christians can just wind up living in fear, and that's something the New Testament specifically tells us to not do. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, uh, I, I, I really don't understand the psychology of those who want these things to be true and mm-hmm. who continue to look for more and more of them. Yeah. It would seem to me that you'd be constantly looking over your shoulder, worried that you know, the Antichrist is detecting what you're doing in your room through your computer. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it must be a terrible way to live. Um, and I, I can't imagine that it gives any comfort or or gives any solace to anyone who believes in things like that. It, it must provoke them to continue to, to live in fear at all times. Well, one thing I think it could do for some people, and I think specifically people like Mephesus, for instance, be it kind of gives you this air of having inside knowledge that you know what's really going on and everyone else, even all the experts in the field, have been blinded to the truth. So it kind of feeds one's ego. I can see that, too. I don't understand that kind of thinking uh, too well, uh, but I can certainly see how that might appeal to some people who feel uh, insecure in their own position Mm -hmm. uh, or feel oppressed by the system. Uh, It may offer comfort to those who feel like the system is oppressing them, Mm -hmm. and it gives them a quick and easy explanation for what the system is up to. I think you might even recommend some kind of literature on this other than your book, ones on the research and such, like, for instance, Tom Nichols's book, The Death of Expertise. Okay, yeah, yeah. This, that's, uh, Nichols is not specifically concerned with conspiracy theories, but what he talks about uh, does have direct application to that. So let me mm-hmm. summarize that book briefly. Uh, Nichols is, a, um, I believe, a political science professor, and he's noted that 
in recent times, experts have become less and less respected uh, as the ability of people to just put their opinions anywhere on the Internet has grown. And he gives a specific example, which I found very uh, perturbing as well as poignant. Uh, there's a gentleman whose name escapes me at the moment who is one of the world's leading experts on certain types of chemical weapons. And he happened to see on, tri on Twitter one day a uh, young female student was assigned a project on that particular chemical, which was his specialty. And she was making some false statements about it, and she was, but she was begging for help with her paper. And so the expert chimed in and said, well, first of all, let me tell you that your facts are wrong about this, this, and this. And rather than being grateful, the student became very upset with him and started calling him names and saying terrible things to him. And when he revealed his identity and said, hey, look, I'm one of the leading experts on this subject, uh, look me up, the student said, well, no, I don't want to look, I'm not going to look you up. But, you know, they were offended by the idea that mm -hmm. just continued to insult him without even checking to see if, you know, if, he, if he was the expert that he really was. And so I suppose this could lead back to what you said earlier about there's a certain amount of pride involved. Um, it, people don't want to recognize in many cases today that there are people who are better, uh, better informed than they are. Mm -hmm. uh, and the experts have, been, have taken a back seat to the idea, well, this, I can find it myself just because it's on, on Google. I can get a right answer as well as anyone. And that is not how the process of research and finding answers works. I mean, just having, being able to find the first thing that pops up doesn't mean you have the right answer. Yeah, part of it is saying that with what you said, we've reached a day and age in our country, especially with the snowflakes out there, where nowadays you don't have to show an idea is wrong. You just have to show that idea offends me, and it's automatically wrong. Uh, yeah. Yeah, if it's offensive, it's wrong. Well, yeah, I've been debating someone on YouTube lately who has that idea, and when I quoted experts uh, at him, he he was uh, offended by that as well. Uh, he, he just he called it an argument from authority. It's like that's not what an argument from authority is. Argument from authority is just saying because he's an expert, he's he's right. Now, what do we do is we quote the experts, and that puts a burden on the non-expert to explain why they why their uh, disagreement should be believed over that, what the expert says. But that's a burden that, that these snowflakes, as you say, don't seem to want to shoulder. They believe as long as they can express an opinion, that makes it valid. As you consider asking him if we should take it on his authority, but it's an argument from authority? <laughs> yeah, I, I think I said something like that, but something more amusing is coming because I found some places where he quoted scholars and he didn't seem to have a problem with that. Mm. So I, I'm going to be calling him to account for that pretty soon. I don't think he's going to answer that. Yeah. Now, by the way, did this Mark Freely guy, did he respond to anything you said? Barely, no, no. He, he did not. Uh, he, he ignored my messages to him, um, and he's continued to put out, some of the things he's been putting out lately have not been so reliant on conspiracy theories that have been more like moral messages, which he's done okay on. But um, he, he, he pretends not to notice that he's been corrected. Um, in other cases, I've, I've, I've pointed out errors like that to people, and they're like, oh, well, you're entitled to your opinion. Uh, they don't even bother answering you know, the points that I bring up. Uh, there's, there's a certain degree to which people will hang on to these conspiracy theories like teddy bears because they're so comfortable with them. Uh, they won't take any correction at all. Uh, I imagine it takes a lot, a lot of effort to upend your worldview when you've 
started implementing the idea of conspiracy theories into it. Yeah, I recently got myself banned from a YouTube channel by someone who uh, is quite insistent that every single dream she has is about the rapture, and I'd show up and just give a little correction every time, and before too long, I got banned. Yeah, that doesn't take long now, yeah. <laughs> well, Farrelly didn't ban me from his YouTube channel, but he did ignore me. Now, let's uh, get into some of these theories, and let's go back in time to one of the starting ones. And this one is one that's still popular today, and that's the idea of the two Babylons from Alexander Hislop. Hmm. Who, who uh, was Alexander Hislop? All right, well, let's... Uh, all right, yeah. So Hislop uh, was from Scotland. He lived in the 19th century, and he was the author of a work titled The Two Babylons. Now, uh, let me mention something that really irritates me about this uh, to start. Mm-hmm. We have some church leaders who actually promote this stuff, and mm-hmm. they and that's I'm not talking about someone just like fairly. Uh, John MacArthur actually oh, yeah. promotes this stuff, and very recently uh, the gentleman who Jefferson, yeah, Robert Jeffress, yeah. who's one of uh, Donald Trump's major supporters, he recently made some statements about Catholicism that sounded like they came right out of the two Babylons. Right. So he is either. You know, supporting that, or he got information from someone else who's supporting that. So this is this is one of the more mainstream conspiracy theory ideas that's entertained by Christians. This is not some minor thing. Yeah. Um, the, the central view that Islam was trying to promote was that uh, Christianity in his time was corrupted by what he calls mystery Babylon, and much of that he attributed to Roman Catholicism. Um, and he went back and basically created this entire history in which the biblical figure of Nimrod was behind a, a vast movement to uh, rework religious truth. And uh, supposedly this, this influence continued through, partially through his, uh, through his family and then into other pagan religions, supposedly influencing Christianity and eventually Catholicism. Mm-hmm. Uh, to do this, uh, Hislop had to ascribe to Nimrod a whole crazy history. Now, to, now, another person who was really into promoting the two Babylons uh, is Jack Chick, uh, the author of the tracks, who uh, he recently passed away. But several of his tracks directly refer to the two Babylons. And if you've ever seen a picture of Nimrod wearing some kind of uh, accoutrement with a horn sticking out of his forehead, that's where that idea comes from. It comes from Alexander Hislop. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, in fact, remember, uh, and we should say out also, we're both Protestants, so this is nothing to defend Catholicism per no. se, but just saying, even though we aren't, pro- we aren't Catholics, we don't want false witness spread about Catholicism. No, it doesn't help any. If you're yeah. going to refute or respond to Catholicism, you need to do so responsibly. And mm-hmm. the two Babylons is not a responsible way to respond to Catholicism. Yeah. In fact, it makes responses to Catholicism look silly. I remember a couple of years or so ago, my wife saw a video, and it was based on Jack Chick, some guy who had working with him, Alberto Rivera, I think, with a... Claim, yes. with a claim that Islam was invented by the Roman Catholic Church. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. Islam was invented, the, Nazi, the Nazis were invented by the Catholic Church, mm-hmm. communism was invented by the Catholic Church, and 
just about everything was invented by the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. That's that's how that's how far ranging and far reaching this uh, chick brought this conspiracy. Mm-hmm. And further back, there were things like Abraham Lincoln was assassinated by a Catholic, you know, a Catholic operative. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just every everything. The Catholic Church is behind everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and someone else who did promote this for a while, but then changed his mind. I believe Ralph Woodrow is who I'm thinking about, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Oh, he, he's he's a great guy. Did you get him on your show? I forget. I was going to, but he doesn't do radio shows. Okay. Oh, he would be great. I'm sure. Mm-hmm. But yeah, he originally wrote a book supporting. Hislop's ideas, and then he looked into it and changed his mind about it and wrote another book responding to his original book. Mm-hmm. Uh, he wrote an article for the Christian Research Journal on the subject. Mm-hmm. And strangely, you can still find people um, who are buying his first book and saying how wonderful it is. And I once went out to the Amazon reviews and pointed out that he had changed his mind, but it didn't seem to affect anyone there. They still wanted to believe the first one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What exactly is wrong with Hislop's research? I mean, what mistakes did he make? Uh, much of it is simply that he made up things. Uh, or he tried, Now, I'll put it this way. Now, everyone likes to play connect the dots when they're kids, right? Yeah. Okay. And what he did is he would put a dot over here and put another dot a mile away. He connected to it and say, look at the horsey. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like he's, he finds very remote facts and connects them in ways that, is, that there's no relationship whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had to add all kinds of, you know, he had to make make assumptions about different things. He had to add more uh, information in that wasn't shown by the evidence. Or he would play word games with the evidence. Uh, he, he, would just, he would just say, well, this sounds like this, so maybe this proves this, just based on the slight semantic similarity. Um, I'm trying to find a good, simple example. I think an example could be what many mythicists do today with Jesus being the son of God based on the sun in the sky. Yeah, S-U-N. Yeah, exactly. This is the sun. As far back as 10,000 B.C., history is abundant with carvings and writings reflecting people's respect and adoration for this object. The early civilizations did not just follow the sun and stars, they personified them. The sun, with its life-giving and saving qualities, was personified as a representative of the unseen creator or God. God's sun, the light of the world, the savior of humankind. The shortening of the days and the expiration of the crops when approaching the winter solstice symbolized the process of death to the ancients. It was the death of the sun. And thus it was said, the sun died on the cross, only to be resurrected or born again. That's the kind of word games I'm talking about right there. Uh, of course, you know, the words S-U-N, son, exists like that only in English. That's not what it was called in Hebrew and Greek. Mm-hmm. And the same with the word S-O-N. It, it simply wasn't like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, a good, a good simple example from Hislop. He would have Nimrod be related to uh, Semiramis. That was his, that was his wife. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and put them together, but the two of them were not contemporaries. I mean, Nimrod was a much, much earlier figure, and we accept the biblical chronology in a literal sense, which Hislop did, whereas Semiramis was a much later figure who did not live at the same time. Um, another thing here, 
he would look at some of these Egyptian depictions of various gods and make claims about what they were wearing and what it meant. And you look into the Egyptian records and look into the, what the Egyptian scholars say, and they say, no, it doesn't mean the same thing as what Hislop is saying. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're just, they're just, when you, he made assumptions about what he saw and added on to it whatever he needed in order to get where he wanted to go. And that's, that's, that was his function uh, and the way he worked. Well, isn't it great that there isn't anyone on the Internet doing that kind of thing with Egyptian material today? <laughs> you know as well as I do how many people there are doing things like that with Egyptian material. Oh, and, yes, uh, I do. Akaria S. anyone? Well, yeah, but you know, she passed away yeah. recently, and but um, she was one of the leading proponents of some of these conspiracy theories. Uh, and uh, although she, of course, being deceased, she's not active anymore. Nevertheless, mm-hmm. she supported some of these kinds of things and claimed that the Christianity had stolen from wherever you can imagine, from Egypt, from Greece, from Babylon, even from South America. I mean, mm-hmm. Christianity wasn't original, but everyone else was. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, I think a danger of this, in fact, is when I'm talking with Christians and they're trying to tell me that something is pagan, even if it's Christmas or Easter or even Halloween, I'll look and say, you know, if you can't back this claim, you're in for a real danger because you're going to be saying this. And then one day your kid's going to come home from college and say, yeah, I've decided I can't be a Christian anymore because Christianity's copied from the pagans. What are you yeah. going to say at that point? Yeah, I mean, it's you know, even if it seems obscure, it's going to be brought up at some point. Uh, at least one theory like that is going to be brought up, and especially you, know, you, you and I know that we, you and I have that standard joke about Zeitgeist, which mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> the Zeitgeist film. The religious institutions in this world are put there by the same people who gave you your government, your corrupt education, who set up your international banking cartels. Because our masters don't give a damn about you or your family. All they care about is what they have always cared about, and that's controlling the whole damn world. We know how many millions of people saw that and how long it took me to get into it. And I'm still trying to find those two guys in Shaw have asked you to review it. (laughs) Yeah, I know who those guys are. They're they're in trouble. But yeah, that is the, that is now you talk about a conspiracy theory. That mm-hmm. film right there promotes several of them at one time, mm-hmm. and it's a very unusual combination of promoting the idea that one Jesus came from pagan figures, mm-hmm. two the nine eleven disaster was a government conspiracy, and three the uh, the great financial institutions are part of the conspiracy too. It's very unusual to lump all of those together, but that's exactly what Zeitgeist did. Mm-hmm. Now let's uh, start talking about another theory day. And this one I can see some people getting an idea of how there could be some truth because I've heard the terms used several times. So many politicians have spoken about a new world order coming and such. And a lot of people can say, hey, what what is this new world order? And of course... A lot of our futurist friends connected with the coming Antichrist and such. I mean, we can't deny politicians are saying this. They are. The interest that each of us has to maintain our independence and the security of our peoples. And the hope that each of us has to build a new world order. 
in which nations and peoples with different systems and different values can live together in peace, respecting one another while disagreeing with one another. We have before us the opportunity to forge for ourselves and for future generations a new world order to fulfill the promise and vision of the UN's founders. There is a chance for the President of the United States to use this disaster to carry out what his father, a phrase his father used, I think only once, and hasn't been used since, and that is a new world order. What are they talking about? Well, it depends on which politician you're talking to. I do believe that in most cases they're simply meaning that this is a, a general proclivity for the, some of the nations like America to take mm -hmm. a leadership role and to, and to you know, take charge of things, and especially to stand up against you various ideologies like terrorism mm -hmm. or you know, and and to you know say we're not going we're not going to tolerate that we're going to stand against that kind of thing and move against it mm -hmm. um, thing is if once they use that phrase it's it's something that a lot of conspiracy theorists are willing to fill with their own meaning and to the point that they will see new world order influence in virtually anything mm -hmm. uh, at all and I think one of my favorites on this I was just looking this up now this idea that the New World Order maybe was, you know, constructing the Washington Monument to set up some kind of uh, secret message to other people. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, yeah, and you ask yourself, well, why would you? Why don't you just tell each other in person? I mean, why would you want to construct a whole monument like that and put secret messages in the measurements of it? And you can just, you know, go talking, go talking to each other. I think one example of what you're talking about could be, for instance. And Jonathan Kahn wrote his book, The Harbinger, and talked about how all these politicians started quoting Isaiah 9-10 about how we will rebuild. And he comes up with this huge theory about it. And my thing is that probably some guy just would not want to think of something inspirational to say for a speech goes to his uh, Bible gateway, whatever, types in rebuild. Looks that verse, oh, that looks like a good verse to use and such. And then the next politician is, I think, yeah, I think we can use that verse too, and it becomes a theme that everyone uses about really thinking about it. Yeah, yeah I, I, that's one of my favorite. Khan is, uh, he doesn't follow all the traditional conspiracy theories, but he's got his own that he likes to promote. <laughs> yeah, you're referring to Isaiah 9 10, and that was one. Yeah. I, um, <laughs> I had to take a look at Khan's newest book, The Paradigm, recently for, for an assignment, and that's, I'm going to be, something's going to be coming out about that pretty soon. Um, but Isaiah 9 10, yeah, I mean, he was, saying that that was used as a sort of a you know, reference to the uh, World Trade Center conspiracy by some of these politicians as saying that it's hinting at some kind of enmity with God. Um, and one of his arguments was that, well, Isaiah 910 is so obscure. I mean, why would they use it unless they were doing some kind of you know, conspiracy? And you look it up and you find, well, it's not that obscure. I mean, just to, the most pertinent example in this context, I mean, Bill Clinton used that verse right down here, not far from where I live, when we had the hurricane. Mm -hmm. And he refused it to encourage people to rebuild down here after the hurricane. Mm -hmm. And so some of these later politicians are simply probably mirroring Clinton's use of it. I mean, I will say it is not a correct use of it. It's a very uh, homilytic use of Isaiah 910. But nevertheless, I mean, there's, there's a perfectly logical explanation for why some of these later politicians made use of the same verse. It had nothing to do with the conspiracy. Yeah, I still think it could be just us. Even what I had said, I mean, people are 
who are in projects want to go to the Bible because a lot of Americans will get inspiration from the Bible. So they say, I don't know a verse. I'll just do a Google search, see what comes up. Oh, look, that verse seems to fit. And as we, you and I know very well, it's quite easy for people to take Bible verses totally out of their context. Exactly. I mean, it's, it's not, you know, they turn the Bible into a uh, desktop calendar. That's what, that's the way I like to compare yeah. it. Yeah. So when we hear of a term about a new world order, what should we be thinking about? Um, again, it depends, again, on the politician that's saying it. And most likely they're simply referring to a certain ideology that they associate with America being a leading nation. Mm. Um, they're cer- almost certainly not thinking of any kind of conspiracy because certainly if there was a conspiracy, one of the stupidest things they could do is make a public announcement about it. Right. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, yes, we're, we're doing a secret conspiracy. Here it is. Let me tell millions of you about it right now. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly there, there's nothing, uh, nothing of the sort in evidence of, that the, the conspiracy theorists are thinking of. Mm-hmm. Uh, just looking at a note here, um, there's, there's a, a phrase around the so-called all-seeing eye on the dollar bill All right. that someone interpreted as announcing the birth of a new world order, mm-hmm. uh, which uh, is not quite correct. Uh, in, that, in that particular case, the phrase is new order of the ages, it refers to America being founded as a nation with a sacred destiny. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the, that was the origin of the word, and so you, the, the phrase. You can see how a modern politician like one of the Bushes could end up using that phrase to refer to modern America becoming being a leading nation and in that role taking part as a sort of guardian in world affairs. And that's what you would expect. You know, a large and powerful nation to do. They would, they, you know, they would almost have to take that role. Yeah, I'm. I was born in 1980, so I remember I was 12 when George Bush Senior became president, and he's the first one I do remember using the term "new world order." Of course, back then I was a young teenager, probably more interested in playing video games and politics, so I wasn't paying much attention to it. Out of these troubled times, our fifth objective. A new world order can emerge, a new era, freer from the threat of terror, stronger in the pursuit of justice, and more secure in the quest for peace. An era in which the nations of the world, East and West, North and South, can prosper and live in harmony. A world in which nations recognize the shared responsibility for freedom and justice. We have before us the opportunity to forge for ourselves and for future generations a new world order, a world where the rule of law, not the law of the jungle, governs the conduct of nations. When we are successful, and we will be, we have a real chance at this new world order, an order in which a credible United Nations can use its peacekeeping role to fulfill the promise and vision of the UN's founders. What is at stake is more than one small country. It is a big idea, a new world order, where diverse nations are drawn together in common cause, 
to achieve the universal aspirations of mankind, peace and security, freedom and the rule of law. Such is a world worthy of our struggle and worthy of our children's future. Now we can see a new world coming into view. A world in which there is the very real prospect of a new world order. In the words of Winston Churchill, a world order in which the principles of justice and fair play protect the weak against the strong. A world where the United Nations, freed from Cold War stalemate, is poised to fulfill the historic vision of its founders. Yeah, I mean, you've seen hints of, you see some hints of stuff like that mm-hmm. in Woodrow Wilson with the first, uh, you know, aborted attempt at something like the United Nations. You see some hints with Franklin Delano Roosevelt. But, uh, yeah, it, it's, again, it's not, it's, it's again, they're things they're speaking of openly. They're, they're, yeah. not, they're not trying to hide anything. And a lot of these people that get into this, it's as if all these people are somehow know who the Antichrist is, and they're working to bring it about. <laughs> yeah, well, it's it, it reminds, there's a fellow named Benjamin Cream who's been saying that he's been supporting someone that many Christians think is the Antichrist. He's been announcing that he's going to bring this person forward for years, and we're still waiting. Um, mm. <laughs> It seems like it's it's taking a long time for all of this to happen. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm trying to not have anything against futurists here. Cause, I mean, I'm I'm still married to a futurist. Ari's a futurist. She hasn't get, agreed with preterism yet, which is fine with me and such. I think your wife still holds to futurism, if I'm correct. But, yeah, to some extent. Yeah, yeah. But I I was wondering, if you, like, if you want to be a futurist, that's fine. But please don't be doing this. What I call be pin the tail on the antichrist game, because we can go to most any Christian bookstore, and I can show you in the back, gathering dust, all these books about who the Antichrist is, and well, now he's dead, so it's a bit too late for that one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's, it's, a, it's a revolving door for who the Antichrist is. It has been for a long time now. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think, um, yeah, I, I, I made a long list of various people who have been candidates for the Antichrist. I think the best one was Prince Charles. Yeah, uh, the Antichrist in a cup of tea was the book about him. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, a lot of the he's not dead, but a lot of the candidates you know, are dead now. Uh, mm-hmm. And people never seem to learn from the repeated failures. Uh, certainly, Jonathan Kahn uh, has not learned from his prior failure with the Harbinger, um, mm-hmm. and he just keeps putting out more books where he just changes the emphasis. And certainly, John Hagee has not learned from his many failures. I mean, you, you can look back and see places where he said that um, the Ebola virus was a sign of the coming end, or Y2K, that's mm-hmm. a sign that the Antichrist is coming. That's The Antichrist is going to take advantage of y, the Y2K problem in order to take over. Yeah. Well, we're still waiting. <laughs> yeah. It's moving kind of slow. Uh, and and you know, the Y2K example is a good one as well of, of a failed example of conspiracy theories. Uh, you know, certainly there were some minor problems, but you know, and we certainly did have to fix the computers at that time in order to prevent more problems. Mm-hmm. But that provided the perfect opportunity for many conspiracy theorist-minded people to, to say that, hey, hey, here's something that's going to cause the new world order to take over. Mm-hmm. And it provided an opportunity for some people to cash in, selling 
all the survival <laughs> supplies and such. Oh, certainly. <laughs> there are opportunity knocks in many forms. And we've had people just recently saying that uh, the solar eclipse was a sign of judgment coming. And then uh, September 23rd was supposed to be the big day. And uh, and we just recently missed yet another rapture day. There were some people who were saying yesterday was supposed to be the date of a rapture. So, you know, I... I, I I deserve a medal for all the raptures I've been surviving here. You and you and me both. Yeah, I grew up with uh, Edgar Wisnod as the one saying that kind of thing happened. Mm-hmm. Now, yeah, I, I did see the eclipse in person in South Carolina. I can understand why many people thought that was such a fearful thing. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it looks like literally someone shot a hole in the sky. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if this is a, that would be a classic example of taking a pertinent fact, something that's real and decorating it with unreal facts uh, in order to find a conspiracy. Um, it, it's, it's Some real event actually inspires further the idea that something worse is going to happen. That, that's a good example of it right there. Uh, I think another example is something that's also happened recently in our country's history, and one the times you were directly involved with as well, and those are the two hurricanes that hit us recently. And I remember listening to some radio talk shows are driving through, and some people thought the government was actually controlling the hurricanes so they could clear the people out and buy the land. And I'm thinking, if the government really wants the land, they got better ways of getting it than using a hurricane. Yeah, not only that, they'd have to clean it up afterwards. Right. <laughs> I mean, you know, where I am, we didn't have a whole lot of damage, yeah. but uh, not to my home. But the amount of cleanup that had to be done was tremendous. And uh, if you're not going to drive people out, I'm sorry, that's not going to work that way at all. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's that's another unrealistic aspect of the conspiracy theory idea. It's like so many of these conspiracy theories say this is being done for this specific purpose, but it doesn't seem to work too well. Mm -hmm. My conclusion is that if this new world order is a real thing, it's one of the most incompetent conspiracies I've ever seen. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think one of the difference with hurricanes, though, is a lot of people look and say, this is a sign that God is judging us for something. And I, sometimes I can understand some people are thinking that because we're not really used to disaster like that here in the West. And, of course, there is some uh, some truth to the idea that if you do have something happen in your life, it doesn't hurt to look and say, maybe there is something that I'm doing wrong that I need to repent of. But sometimes... Some things just happen. I mean, even in the time of Jesus, when he said, yeah, that tower that fell on most people, it's not because they were any worse sinners than anyone else's. No, no, it's, it's never never wise to assume that, uh, you know, God was pretty competent in the Old Testament of judging people in targeted ways. Uh, this, this idea that he sends a whole hurricane to wreck a, a huge area just because he's targeting like the French Quarter in New Orleans or what have you. That, that's a little absurd. And going back to the Antichrist theories, and just shortly after the election took place, not too long after that, you had a, another ebook out, The Antichrist is Orange. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this idea of Trump is the Antichrist, that, that, that didn't take long to pop up. Now, I'm... I'm not much for Donald Trump. I don't think he's competent as president, uh, but I don't also don't think that he's a good candidate for the Antichrist. 
I would say that if we're going to see an antichrist, he's going to be a little more competent than Donald Trump and a little more able to deceive people than that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but some of the ideas that people came up with, if I can find some, one of the, one of the favorite examples I found was that there was some, um, some kind of, uh, Symbol that that Trump had on a on a like a shield in one of his one of his homes, and they thought that it was a six 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 symbol you know because there were three of the same symbol but none of them looked like a six it was and he had to turn it sideways to make it even look close. Uh, another idea was well Trump Tower is six hundred sixty six feet tall. Uh, well, no, it's six hundred sixty four point one feet tall. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like, well, maybe Donald Trump is the neighbor of the beast, but he's not the beast. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and like I said, you don't have to be a fan of Trump to do this. You just have to care about what's true. I mean, I remember back when Obama was in office, I couldn't stand Obama. I think he's one of the worst, if not the worst, we ever had. And my own dad would send out these large email blasts that unfortunately would include some new fact about Obama or something that he did and I'd have to check back and say and hit reply all and everyone will no, this isn't true. Because I've always said, look, I disagree with a guy as much as anyone else here does, but if we're going to take down our opponents, we need to do it with truth, not with falsehood. Absolutely. And the, tr- and the truth is, well, the truth is much harder to find than, uh, mm. than one of these conspiracy ideas. Those are floating around constantly as an easy matter to just- Press you know, yeah, press the send button and send it on to other people. But it's kind of like what Weird Al says: stop forwarding this crap to me. You know, yeah, <laughs> we need more stuff like that. Yeah, I think uh, I think Winston Churchill has the same bad. Uh, a lie can reach all the way around the world before the truth can even strap its boots on. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's 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 very easy to send falsehood around and. It tends to be harder to correct it once it's out there. Mm-hmm. You know, a- another big one that a lot of people get into is the whole Illuminati idea. Oh, yes. Illuminati. There is, once again, some truth to this. There really was an organization at one time called the Illuminati. And now, to be clear, when we're starting off, when people talk about the Illuminati today, what do they usually have in mind? When they speak of it today, they think they're of some kind of shadow group uh, that is part of that new world order that's manipulating events. That's mm-hmm. what the uh, that's the impression I get from all the references I see to it. It's very seldom that I see it explained as to exactly who they are and what it is they're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they're, the Illuminati are simply pulled out of a hat just as an explanation any time no other explanation presents itself. Mm-hmm. And when we watch media, like, like you, I don't care much for sports, but every Super Bowl performance out there, it seems to be strange and bizarre and such, and it's supposed to have this deep symbolism, and it's the Illuminati who somehow decide that using halftime of the Super Bowl is a great way to send a message to themselves. <laughs> Uh, I, I, that's, that's the same thing as I said with the Washington Monuments. Like they're sending these secret messages to one another, but no, either you know the average guy watching the Super Bowl isn't getting this. He doesn't understand what's going on. So I don't understand what the point of this is. Mm-hmm. It seems that the Illuminati are, and the other groups are spending a lot of money sending messages to each other, 
that doesn't doesn't accomplish any purpose. I mean, it's like, is this some kind of like a show off kind of thing that they're doing to show that hey, we can send a message? Okay, for what? Mm-hmm. It doesn't seem to serve any purpose. I have not heard that one about them being in the halftime Super Bowl show though. That's a new one on me. Oh, oh, oh yeah. When there are a lot of people that look at celebrity music videos and such, and say that. The the movements that are being made in this video and all the special effects and things like that, this is really a secret message from the Illuminati or it's a cult or something. Usually it's the Illuminati, though. Oh, boy. <laughs> well, that's a new one. Of course, <laughs> now, there really was a group called the Illuminati. I think we should stress that, but there was what? a group that existed like that. Uh-huh. But... Uh, you notice I use past tense. Uh, right. They did exist in the 1700s, and there was a fellow named Adam Weishaupt that had found them. But you know, he was not trying to promote any kind of conspiracy. He was not trying to take over the government. He was actually sort of a secular rationalist at the time. He was just trying to use it to promote the group to promote education, as he saw it. Mm-hmm. And what ended up happening, though, is he took in another guy, uh, a, a baron named Adolf Knigge, K-N-I-G-G-E, who decided he was going to expand the group and sort of turn it into a, a party group. Mm-hmm. And he and Weissoft had a falling out because of it. And shortly after that, the Illuminati basically went dead. I mean, they did, they've been just, uh, you know, within just a few years, they didn't exist anymore. In spite of that, only within a few years after that, People started coming up with them as scapegoats for conspiracy theories. And they've been a staple with conspiracy theories ever since. And this was even before the age of the Internet, wasn't it? It was. It was. I mean, the ideas didn't spread that fast, but they did spread. And uh, it didn't take long at all for conspiracy to pop up around this group. So conspiracy theories, in many ways... They're nothing new, but with the internet, they've gained a whole new vehicle to spread so much easier. Exactly, exactly. I mean, it's it's certainly it, there are certainly more than a, more than enough conspiracy theories that were running around in the 1700s. Mm-hmm. But it didn't hurt that much when much of the population couldn't even read yet, like maybe 50 percent. When much of the population was agrarian and didn't have time to read books, even if they could read, they were too busy trying to get their crops in, mm-hmm. or they were too busy you know, fighting disease. And it was mostly an entertainment for the wealthy and illiterate who could have the leisure to indulge themselves with these wild conspiracy ideas. Uh, today, by comparison, anyone who has a computer would have been leisure class at that time. Mm-hmm. And... I think one factor definitely in conspiracy theories spreading around is that we have too much leisure time and too much time Mm. on our hands. Uh, (laughs) It sort of encourages people to wander around and indulge themselves with crazy ideas. Yeah, I I think one of the contrasts I was thinking was, as you said back then, a lot of people couldn't read. Today, a lot of people just don't read. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, they can read, but they it's, it's a lot of work. And so they will only read so far as, as they feel like it to get what they want to believe to be true. Mm-hmm. And uh, But if it takes a lot, if it takes too much thinking or too much research, then it's not welcome, I would say. Yeah, and this is the case in 
you know a lot about how search engines work and such, so you can probably expound with some more, but someone will just do a web search, and the first item they find, I agree with him, that's it. That's what the truth is. Yeah, yeah. Um, and certainly most people are, are not going to want to go past the first page of search results. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, instruments like Google don't help a lot because instead of, they certainly can't rank things. You know, their, their algorithm is certainly not capable of ranking things by truthfulness, despite mm-hmm. what some people may think. Uh, but uh, they will tend to rank items according to how often they're visited. Mm-hmm. And so naturally, some conspiracy stuff gets visited a lot and ends up on top of the Google search rankings. Or you end up on top of something from Wikipedia that doesn't have sufficient information right. to respond. Mm-hmm. Certainly, certainly, it's yeah, you know, it's the internet makes it easier to find the answers if you know how to use it properly. And that's where you know, some of the training I've had with search engines is helpful. But uh, mm-hmm. most people are, have very little idea how to use a search engine effectively in order to find the answers they, that they really need. Yeah, this isn't to say that a search engine isn't a good tool, but it's. It can be a very helpful tool. You just have to know how to use it. And sadly, for a lot of these conspiracy theories, unless you want to do what you did and track down an old, old book or something, usually a search engine is pretty much going to be all you have sometimes. Yeah, yeah, it, it is. And uh, I'm very glad to see that so many older books are being put in. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but there's no way they're going to get all of them put in, and you're still going to have so many sources that you need for the whole truth uh, that are going to be only available from obscure public or, or college libraries. Yeah. You won't be able to find the answer for a long time that way. And I'm thinking right now it can be kind of like how I've said that uh, you can have an atheist come to you with a list of 101 Bible contradictions, and you could go out and you could do all the research and thoroughly demolish each and every one of them, and they're not going to say, oh, Thank you. That very clear thing up. So now we're going to go to another link with 101 other Bible contradictions, and the whole thing just starts all over again. Yeah, it's you step on one ant, and then they bring out another ant somewhere else. And it's, uh, it's it's almost impossible to, to get to every single one of these things. Hmm. I, I think I'm just going through some things here. Let me give you an example of how hard it is to can be to find some of these claims and, and debunk them. Okay. All right. There's this idea that the banking industry is part of some Greek conspiracy mm-hmm. and that the Federal Reserve is part of some Greek conspiracy. And this has gone all the way back into the time of the founding fathers of America. That, that's when, the, that was in Zeitgeist also, wasn't it? Yeah, that was part of that was Zeitgeist Part 3. That's the mm-hmm. part nobody ever pays attention to because uh, it's kind of boring, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> but um, one of the claims that's often made is that in the 1840s, President Andrew Jackson was aware of this conspiracy and again, and did what he could to stop it. Um, and here's a claim that, that's, that's, here's a sample claim. In 1845, Andrew Jackson died, but before his death, he was asked what his great achievement was. His reply was, quote, I killed the bank. Now, you look for that term, you look for that phrase, I killed the bank, and you add in Andrew Jackson to see if he actually said that. Yeah, I, I, there was a time I was getting into presidential biographies, and I read Jackson's biography. He never said anything like that, according to the biography. There's no reference to it whatsoever. I also checked other Jackson biographies for that same quote. No. Another source says that Jackson had that put on his tombstone. Well, that is definitely not true. You can, these days, thankfully, you can do stuff like even look at people's gravestones online, mm-hmm. which is amazing. Uh, sort of 
it says some things about privacy, but that's another matter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but now, but now, think of that. How easy, How hard is it to prove that Jackson never said anything like that? Extremely hard. Yeah. You know, if you say, if you say, well, it's not, it's not shown in his biographies anywhere. Oh, well, he said it in secret in some meeting he had with so and so. Where do you get that? <laughs> you know, and it goes back to what you said. What's the source? Where's yeah. your information coming from? Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, it's it's the same thing you're saying. It's like stamping on ants because they keep coming up with new stuff. If you refute one thing that the person says, they'll just come up someplace else where they think it was said rather than admitting that they were wrong. Mm-hmm. I think one of the one of the key quotes I said in a, in a Christian research journal article on Zeitgeist. I said, uh, Zeitgeist assures the viewer that we have been lied to by the powers that be, and therefore the viewer has been given a response that answers all refutations automatically. Any dissenting source must be in on the conspiracy, right. and academic people must be one of the institutions that have lied to us. Mm-hmm. And so to that extent, Zeitgeist and other conspiracy theorists are providing those who want to believe them with an immediate rationale for dismissing any contrary data. Mm-hmm. It's all part of the same cover-up. You know, it's it's not a refutation. The problem is not so much refuting something like Zeitgeist. It's trying to get people to believe that a refutation has actually happened. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking another great example of a quote, and this is when you and I have heard many Christian apologists, very smart, capable ones using, and that's the one with Gandhi of, I like their Christ, I don't like their Christians. Oh my word! Yeah, that's one of my favorite ones. Yeah, that's <laughs> I, I really enjoy that one because I yeah, I think you remember I made a video about that and mm-hmm. I had a gentleman from the United Kingdom who provided a voice of Gandhi for me. That that was excellent. Mm-hmm. Let me just go ahead and look that up for a moment because that is such an excellent example of kind of thing to get passed around so readily, mm-hmm. and it's not the only one that's been passed around by Gandhi. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it, it's, it is also a perfect example of something that's hard to look up. And yeah, the exact quote, I like your Christ, I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. Um, eventually, what I found out is that the quote was real, but not not made by Gandhi. It was made by some other person, um, someone someone whose name would mean nothing probably to anyone listening. His name was Bharadatta. Mm-hmm. B-A-R-A, first word, D-A-D-A, second word. That's mm-hmm. where it came from. Gandhi himself never said any such thing as that that we can record. Uh, but you know, people find that persuasive because they think it's, you know, they think it's something he would have said and something they want him to say. And, of course, the fact that a celebrity said it, like Gandhi, is something that they prefer to have happen mm-hmm. uh, because they think that lends a certain amount of authority. Yeah. And I, I think they can also believe it, said because you know, I've, I've heard Ravi Zacharias share that quote, and hey, he's from India, and he's no intellectual slouch, so people here think, well, there, there's probably a lot to that. I mean, Ravi's not an idiot, after all. No, no, I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure he, yeah, I'm sure Ravi Zacharias would regret knowing that he had done something like that. I'm sure he didn't. Mm-hmm. If, you know, someone like that says, you know, follows a quote like that, they're just doing it to find something quickly. They're not probably not going to rely on it for a major point or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then again, you know, it, it, it does affect our credibility. What mm-hmm. what happens, too, I mean, let me just think. There's an example I once had, and it had nothing to do with a religious context, mm-hmm. where um, someone used a false quote of Thomas Jefferson to support some political point. And when I pointed out to them that 
you know, from Thomas Jefferson's the website for Monticello actually has a list of false Thomas Jefferson quotes, and that was one of them. And when I pointed this out, and I said, "Oh, well, you're missing the point. You know, the point is not that he actually said it. It's you know, we're trying to make a point about what he about the quotation." Like, well, but if Jefferson never said it, where's the point? Mm-hmm. Why don't you just say I have said it? Of course yeah. you don't. You know, there's a reason you want to attribute that to Jefferson. Mm-hmm. It's because you want you want Jefferson's authority behind it. Well, I'd like to remind everyone you're listening to Deeper Waters Podcast. Today, my guest is J.P. Holding. We're talking about conspiracy theories. Uh, but if you're here next week, it's going to be a very in-depth, scholarly show. Coming back to the show for a second time, we've got Richard Balcom coming. And he's going to be talking about his, the second edition of his book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. Do the Gospels contain eyewitness testimony? So if you're interested in that, and I sure hope you are, come back here next week and we'll be talking about that. Now, JP, uh, you mentioned Wikipedia as well. Now, you know, for me, I refer to Wikipedia as the abomination that causes misinformation. And I think you yeah, that's my reference. Yeah, yeah <laughs> I, think, I think it came from you too. Um, <laughs> what, what's so bad about Wikipedia? Uh, what's so bad is uh, what they, they think is a plus, which is the encyclopedia anyone can edit. Yeah. And anyone means anyone who doesn't know a thing about the topic. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and, and I'm not saying there aren't some items on there that are not reliable, because you have some true experts on mm-hmm. there who think it's part of their mission as experts to put some truth on there. Mm-hmm. But yeah, there's no way that they're going to watch all these millions of articles and be able to make sure that they're mm-hmm. all reporting the truth. Yeah. Uh, it's 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 something that when I was you know running a reference library, I would have been appalled at the idea that someone could just come along and rip out the pages out of the books and then write anything they wanted and put it back in the book in the place of what they tore out. Mm-hmm. And that's essentially what Wikipedia is all about. It's anyone can come along and change anything at any time for any reason, and you have no idea how reliable it is. I mean, sure they can put, oh this this was my source. But then you'd have to check the source too, mm-hmm. and given that anyone can change it, that's that's something that I think you'd be obliged to do is make sure they're reporting the source properly. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been tempting for me to get on there. I've never actually done it, and put in certain claims, and I have access to a database that can tell me about books that are available in in libraries around the world, mm-hmm. and I could just find some obscure book that's only available in a library in. Bulgaria or somewhere, and I could just I could put it in something in Wikipedia and, and put that book as a source. And who in the world was going to know better? Mm-hmm. Certainly not Wikipedia's editors. Yeah. I think Shane Fitzgerald is an example of this. Yeah, that's a very good example. He did he chose to do something rather trivial in context, 
Uh, he waited for a certain musician to pass away, and then he went to the Wikipedia page for that musician and inserted a quotation mm-hmm. and attributed it to that musician. And the editors did remove it fairly quickly, but then he went right back and put it back in, and it stayed there for even longer. But by then, the damage had been done, and there were many, many people around the world quoting that quotation that Fitzgerald inserted into the article, mm-hmm. which was a fraudulent quotation. So it's a perfect illustration of how you can't keep up with things on Wikipedia. And so now imagine that applied to conspiracy theories. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like you said about that quote you gave about the truth not being able to get out as fast as, as, fast as falsehood. Yeah. Well, that's a classic example of how that would work right there. Because this quote was <clears throat> perpetuated and attributed to this musician very quickly. Yeah. And by the time it was corrected, many people had already decided it was authentic and promoted it as authentic. Yeah, and one of my favorite times I've done this for something, it wasn't Wikipedia, but you mentioned this in one of your books on misinformation and such, and that's when Matthew McCormick had his book, The Case Against Christianity. He had this list of 500 gods who were thought to be omnipotent, omniscient, omni-everything and such. And, right. And, and, of course, in a polytheistic system, you already know most of those are nonsense because gods in a polytheistic system are not like that. But I went through and I looked up each of these gods, you know, digging, seeing what I could find. And one of them uh, particularly was amused find was Jar Edo Wins. And mm-hmm. that one was so amusing because that god literally never existed. Yes, a known prank. And it stayed there how long, exactly? I think nearly 10 years. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Now, yeah, and, and, and you picked out a good example there because, mm-hmm. as I recall, McCormick was called down on that. And he, he resorted to the very excuse that I was saying, which is, well, I was trying to make a certain point, and I just did because this shows how easy it is to invent gods. Uh, no, that's not what you were doing, McCormick. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's not what your intention was. You, know, you, you ended up, <laughs> you're, you're, changing, you're changing what your intention was in order to make it look like you were doing the right thing, but that's not what he was doing. Yeah, now, we could say that Wikipedia can be fine enough if you're looking up, say, a non-controversial point of sorts. Or, for instance, as a gamer, if I want to look up something, I'll sometimes go, say, like, the Final Fantasy wiki page and look things up. But if you're talking about serious, serious information, Wikipedia is one of the last places to go to, isn't it? I would say so. I mean, I I would use it for stuff like uh, references for Dragon Ball Z or something like that. Yeah. uh, I'm not sure I trust that anymore either. Mm-hmm. What about also YouTube? And this one, I mean, we have to be, some of you might say, well, geez, if you're going to go against YouTube, JP, you have a YouTube channel, don't you? So, and I have a YouTube channel, so how can we say YouTube can be a bad source of information? Well, of course, you and I are on there to try and clean up the neighborhood a bit. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, you know, I, I think what might illustrate this, and this was done by this recent guy I was taking on there, some of his followers pointed out that he has 34,000 subscribers. And I said, well, you know what? There's channels on there that say the moon landing was faked, and they have millions of subscribers. Mm-hmm. Um, I think YouTube is a place that seems to attract conspiracy theorists, mm-hmm. both people producing them and people commenting on the videos are, are both there in great numbers. Mm-hmm. And that's perhaps illustrative because 
you know, YouTube is a place where you're not having to do a lot of research to, pr to produce anything. You can just slap up a video that looks like a, like a PowerPoint presentation. Mm -hmm. You don't have to put any sources in it. You don't have to put any back uh, supporting information in it. You can just make your claims and you'll have thousands of people commenting on it saying what a wonderful job you did. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. It goes back again to what we said earlier about how easy it is to, uh, for anyone to publish material now. Mm -hmm. And that has certainly made it easier to promote conspiracy theories. Yeah. It's something that I always say on my own blog, my own channel and such is if you see something on my site and you're not sure about it, go look it up. I mean, you and I are very forward about this. We say we are not biblical scholars. You could consider us experts, but we're not the scholars ourselves. Go check with them. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It, it requires work. The truth, it requires work to get to the truth. Yeah. And that's, that's the case whether you're dealing with religious issues or whether you're, you know, even if you're a secularist, it requires some work. Yeah. Uh, I remember my father-in-law, Mike Lacona, told me once about how in uh, Bart Ehrman's book, God's Problem, he said that there was a point in Bart's life where he said that he used to wake up in the middle of the night and he'd be in a cold sweat and a panic, worried that Christianity could be true. And I thought, that is a very good quote, but before I shared it, I went and got the book and read through it and looked at it. Well, yep, that quote's in there. I mean, this is even my own father-in-law, and I was still checking out his reference. Normally, I'd still give a benefit of a doubt to him because he knows so much more than I do, but if I'm going to use a claim like that, I'm going to go check it out first. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. I'm looking at something here. I think I'd like to share something as a great example of a, how conspiracy theory has worked out. Okay. And um, if you remember reading about it, uh, the black cube theory. You remember that? No, I don't. Oh, my goodness. This is one of my favorites. I want to talk about this a bit, if that's all right. Sure. Um, there's been this idea that you know, there are various places around the world where there's these black cubes. Mm-hmm. And the idea is that it's some kind of secret signal that people are worshiping the pagan deity Saturn. Mm. Okay? So people are placing these black cubes around the world in various places, and the whole idea is to get us to worship Saturn. Well, I don't... That hasn't caused me to feel any particular affection for Saturn when I see these things. Have you, have you ever thought? No. Nope. Any, any, no? Okay, well, yeah, I guess it's not working too well. It's strange how these New World Order things don't work too well. Mm. What happened is uh, people found these various black cubes around the world and said, hey, this is one of those New World Order things. We're trying to get us to do Saturn. We're trying to get us to worship Saturn. And you have to look into each one of these and find out why there's a black cube there in the first place. Because, yes, the black cubes are certainly real. They're there. Yeah. But you know, there's, there's nothing to show that they were put there for the purpose of worshiping Saturn. Just some examples. There's one that's part of a science center in Santa Ana, California. And the inside of the cube is uh, a display of rocket engines. Mm -hmm. um, when you look at it, when you, and when you look up the reason why it was done that way, why they put the cube there, the idea was that it was a perfect 3D geometric shape, along with, you know, like a sphere or a pyramid. Mm -hmm. And it was just intended to represent the scientific idea of a perfect shape. But there's nothing to do with Saturn there. That's, that's the reason they did it. Um, one of my favorite examples, though, of, that, of the black cube 
being used that way was one that's located in Denmark. And this was a, this is an example of how hard it is to track down the truth. <laughs> now, fortunately, you and I know somebody on Theology Web who's from Denmark, and he's the person I had to talk to yeah. about that in order to get the truth about this thing. Yeah. Uh, this black cube is located in a city called Svendborg, S-V-E-N-D-B-O-R-G. Well, that's kind of ironic, Borg, Borg cube. Okay, <laughs> I didn't think of that before now. Mm-hmm. Um, this thing was put up, and it's it's not anything to do with Saturn worship, but it's considered a bit of a local embarrassment. And I had our friend from Denmark translate this article and explain to me what the whole thing was all about. Uh, it was built in 1983, and the whole idea of it was that it was a piece of modern art that was commissioned by the state. Uh, you know, nothing, to do with, nothing to do with Saturn, nothing to do with worship of a pagan deity. And if, it's, if its whole purpose was to convince people to worship Saturn, it's definitely not doing the job because mm-hmm. people are putting graffiti all over it, and it's considered a local embarrassment. And one commentator even said it was the worst thing that happened to the town since the Nazis invaded. Mm-hmm. So now, answer me this, conspiracy theorists. If this whole idea of putting up this black cube was to get people to worship Saturn, it doesn't seem to be working too well. <laughs> so what, what's the point? Mm-hmm. And yeah. what are they afraid of? I mean, it's, it sounds to me like the New World Order is one of the most incompetent groups of people you've ever seen. Mm-hmm. It, it kind of makes me wonder also why the Illuminati and all these other people are investing so much in Hollywood celebrities. Because last I've seen, Hollywood celebrities for the most part don't seem to be strong Star Wars intellectuals capable of being out a grand conspiracy. No, they're not. They're not. If I were running conspiracy, I'd try and convert the scientists. I'd try and convert the, you know, the major religious leaders like Billy Graham. I'd try and convert the people who can, the politicians who can speak. And they say the politicians are in on it too, but yeah. you know, uh, that's that's not going to accomplish the purpose. Yeah. And I, yeah, I would def, I would definitely not elect someone like Donald Trump. <laughs> yeah, and with the uh, the politicians and such. And, one of the conspiracy I think that comes to mind with this is things like uh, how the politicians know about alien investigations going on, Area 51, such I'm sure you're thinking of people like Tom Horn and Chris Putnam right now with that. Uh, yeah, they're, they're another major promoter of the, you know, the things that Hislop talked about. Definitely, They're definitely into the, some of these conspiracy theories, and since you mentioned that... <laughs> Well, yeah, I haven't had as much to do with them lately, but um, I had a real going on with Putnam at one point. Uh, their thing was the prophesies of St. Malachi. That was something they were really into. Uh, the whole idea being that um, the current Pope was predicted by this set of prophecies uh, by, some, by a medieval mystic. And their thought is that St. Francis is going to be the last pope, and uh, we're going to be in big trouble uh, with him at some point. Well, so far, I mean, Francis has been you know, pretty vocal on some things, but he doesn't seem to be heading in any direction to turn anything into the Antichrist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that seems to be the last thing on his mind right now. Mm-hmm. To go to the search engines again, Ron Such. If someone was going to use a search engine, in the meantime, that can be the first tool someone has, or if not the only tool. How would you recommend they use a search engine effectively? What you're going to need to do 
is uh, to find what you're looking for. You're going to have to narrow things down using unique search terms. And this is the illustration I used uh, that I think will fill the bill. Let's say you want to take a vacation doing big game hunting in Africa. Mm-hmm. Now, if you put in the word Africa, what are you going to get? You're going to get millions and millions and millions of search terms. That's not going to do the job. You're going to have everything in the world on there about Africa. You're going to have to add in a lot of new search terms, extra search terms to narrow down what you're looking for. Mm-hmm. You might narrow it down by putting the name of the country you want to go to. Mm-hmm. You might want to put in the word hunting. You might want to put in safari. You know, just keep mm-hmm. adding unique terms like that will help narrow down your focus and reduce the number of hits that you get. Yeah. And then you're far more likely to find what you're looking for. Not only that, you're going to want to look past the first page of search results. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say these days with all the junk that's out there, you need to look at least five or seven pages deep to make sure you find something good. Mm-hmm. And if, if, if thinking about finding the best information doesn't motivate you, think about how much less money you might spend if you find the right place to take your vacation. Right. And I'm also thinking you add in to check for quality of a site you go to. If it's something about, say, from if you're thinking of hunting in Kenya and it's a website from the Kenyan government, chances are that's going to be a pretty accurate website or some Kenyan wildlife reserve. That's probably going to be a good one to go to. Right, someone who's an authority, I mean, a guy with his, some guy in Peoria with a website who's talking about, yeah, maybe he went hunting over there. Okay, yeah, maybe so. But, you know, you have to consider what, what reason would you have to believe that this person is the authority on that subject matter? Mm-hmm. Uh, if, if, if it is a government source in Kenya, yeah, that's for, they very likely know something. Although, of course, they could also be promoting for tourism purposes. That's something to keep in mind, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's it's not you can't just be lazy and assume that it's going to be correct, but other some sources like the government sources are going to deserve more credence initially mm-hmm. uh, than other sources would. Mm-hmm. You know, with uh, you talking about uh, sharing of false quotes and such a while ago. I, one of the things that I always try to check on is that if I see a quote online and someone before I share it. I will go and specifically put that quote in quotation marks, then put the person's name in quotation marks, and see if I can find a primary resource that says that quote. Because you just put the quote, you're going to get several hits of people saying a quote, and it's going to be like the people saying the same thing again and again without themselves having the source. Uh, one case this happened recently is a well-known Christian apologist who put up, and this was the second year in a row this was done, he put up a picture of Anton LaVey of the Church of Satan and said, and now he said, I'm happy that good Christian parents let their children worship the devil at least one day a year. Well, I have a friend who used to be a Satanist, and he asked, this friend actually emailed the Church of Satan and asked about this quote, which I hadn't found anywhere at all, and they got back and said, no, there is no record of Anton LaVey ever saying this. Ah, good. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> that's, a, that's the kind of, yeah, that's exactly the kind of looking around you need to do. Sometimes you have to go right to the source uh, like that, no matter how 
difficult or how offensive you may find it, you may have to actually go right to the source. Yep. And say, hey, did your did your did you know anything about that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> the, 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 I referred to an example earlier. You know, Thomas Jefferson's Monticello uh, has a website that has false Thomas Jefferson quotes. Mm-hmm. Of course, you know it's in their own best interest to you know deactivate any false quotes like that. remind everyone at this point that you're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast and we really depend on the support of people like you. We really need it here and the work that we do here and getting on so many scars and such on in the interviews, you don't get this much in-depth interviews in many other places. And I'd really like to encourage you to support us. You can go to my website deeperwatersapologetics.com and there's a link there that says, Help support the work of Deeper Waters Christian Apologetics or Christian Ministries. And you click on there in the sublink there and you get taken to Risen Jesus, the ministry of Mike and Debbie Lacona. You've gone to the right place and uh, they will take your donation and you get in touch with me or my wife, Allie, or Mike or Debbie and say, Hey, I made a donation. I want to go to Nick Peters. I want to go to Deeper Waters. It's, re- it's required that you do that, or else they'll think it's a donation for Risen Jesus. So you do that, and they'll make sure we get that money. It'll be set aside. It'll be tax deductible. And then you can go to our e-store also to further support and buy some books that have been either written by me, such as A Creed for the Ages, The Apostles' Creed in Today's Christian, or co-written. And normally, if I would, in fact, Normally, for the most part, except for one, those are ones JP and I have done together. Christian Answers of This Generation's Questions, Defining Inerrancy, Groundless. The only exception is God and Natural Disasters. And, and guys, there's another great way. And listen, you may not feel I am speaking specifically to you this time. You ladies, you can buy something for yourself if you want to. But, man, if you want to please that lady in your life... And if you're a good husband, you better darn well want to. But if you want to please that lady in your life, jewelry is a great way to do it. And we have a jewelry store, actually. My friend Lena Cluster runs that one. And you go and you make your purchase. And whatever you purchase, 25% of it goes to Deeper Waters if you let us know about it. So you can get something special for that lady in your life. And yes, they love jewelry. And you can donate to our ministry at the same time. So guys, like I tell you always, you can buy something to make up for that screw-up that you recently did with your wife. Or you can buy something to make up that screw-up that I know you're going to make in the future. And if you can't do any of this... Please go on iTunes and leave a positive review of our show. I really love seeing them. 
And I like it when so many of you get in touch with me also and let me know about guests who you want to see on the show. I, I've followed through recently on one such thing, and but to give a hint of what's coming in the future, we're going to have Michael Heiser on the show on December 30th because, well, someone recommended him. I got in touch with him, and he liked the idea, so he's coming on. Now, JP, do you have a ministry or organization you'd like to see people donate to? Uh, sure, at this point. Uh, you know, you mentioned Tecton, and uh, my chief ministry now, though, uh, you know, as I've finished doing research on different things, I still do research, but I'm turning more to an idea of uh, bringing apologetics to the mission field. Mm-hmm. And I started a new ministry called Apologetics and Fields. Mm-hmm. And the goal of that ministry will be to bring apologetics teachings to places where ordinarily you couldn't bring it. Uh, yeah, you know, places you now not just with you know, within America or even overseas at some point. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I have a I have a uh, link I have a link to that on my on the Tecton website. Now, currently, we just finished a fundraiser for Apologetics and Fields, so we don't need anything right now. But occasionally, we'll be uh, putting out you know fundraisers for to for specific trips to specific areas where they'd like us to come talk to them. Mm-hmm. And uh, this coming year, we're planning we're planning a trip to a, an Indonesian church in Philadelphia, and a church for immigrants. Mm. And that's going to be sometime in the spring. What's the link they go to to support this? Uh, let me see if I make sure I got that right now. I recently, you know, like I said, we don't need anything right now. Just finished that. So, um, but I, at the front of my page, if you look on the area, it says latest news and 2018 ministry manifesto. There's a page that can be looked at there, and they'll be able to find a link to a place to support apologetics field. Mm-hmm. Now, getting back to our topic, I remember there was a uh, conservative website, and I, I hate to say this because I consider myself a conservative politically as well, but so many of my fellow conservatives just seem to spread fake news constantly. And there was a quote from a Muslim on there saying that, the world was flat. And so many people chime in and boy, look at how stupid these people are, making fun of them and such. Well, I actually did, you know, that great unorthodox sin. I uh, looked up the quote and such and found that it was true. I mean, no, that it was false, of course, and posted something there saying, no, this quote's false. Here is a link with the opposite being said. Something about something to show this was false. And I kept looking and seeing people quote, people comment, they kept saying the exact same thing over and over. So I do the next thing. I do a blog post with a link to where the original post was made on the site and name it specifically. And I I can say they never got in touch with me, but from what I was checking later, that post of theirs just seemed to mysteriously disappear for some reason. I, I... I can't figure out why that could be, but yeah. Now, sometimes it's worthwhile to track these things down, isn't it? Yes, it is. It is. And yeah, can you imagine though if that thing kept spreading around? You know, whose credibility is going to be affected by that? Mm-hmm. It's going to be our credibility, and if we're trying to convince people of a resurrection, something they can't go out and immediately check. It's going to be much harder to convince them if we've already shown ourselves to be unreliable on a certain score. Sure, sure. And that's, 
trying to make sure you know everyone's going to make mistakes, but you yeah. it would be one thing if you had uh, you know looked into a reliable source and found and found that quotation, but it's another thing entirely if someone's just you know listening to someone else on Facebook and spreading it around based on that you know yeah. um, it seems so simple to just click the like button and and the share button or share button and send it to other people. Mm-hmm. But when you do that, you're assuming a certain degree of responsibility that the information you're sending them is correct and and has mm-hmm. the meaning that you think it does. Um, yeah. You know, it, it's one thing to share a picture of your dog or a picture of your baby. Yeah. It's another thing to share a quotation uh, supposedly by some great leader, or to share an item of what turns out to be fake news. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think a lot of people have lost that sense of responsibility because it's so easy to just click that button and make make it spread around. Yeah, we've even had cases of even people who should much know much better, like politicians and such, sharing, sharing stories from The Onion and lately some sharing stories from The Babylon Bee, both of which are satire sites. Uh, yeah, uh, <laughs> you know, thinking that something that's a, that's a parody is true, um, it, this, this tells me that people are not closely examining the sources at all uh, to see what, what kind of... You would think initially seeing a place called the Babylon Bee might give you a hint that it's not exactly a traditional news source uh, mm. or something called the Onion. I mean, that would seem to suggest some kind of joke is afoot. Yeah. <laughs> And I'm sure you and I, I'm sure you and Boris were just as I do the days when Landover Baptist was a big deal. I still, I don't even know if that's around anymore. Have you seen it? I don't think it is, but I remember it was for a while. Yeah, yeah, one of the jokes was uh, you don't realize Landover Baptist is a parody. Well, a good parody does imitate life well, but Mm. there's a a certain point past which you should be able to detect that it's a parody and not something that's, you know, reporting the truth about some matter. Yeah, Uh, I think also one of the claims that you and I often deal with in these things is when we talk about historical events like, say, how the Inquisition killed 50 million people in Europe— and I wish I was an exaggeration, but I'm sure someone has said 50 million before. It, well, certainly more than the population of Spain. I mean, <laughs> the whole, the whole, this whole thing is of misinformation and conspiracies. It's all together linked. It all goes back to the same problem that people have: uh, you know, wanting things to be true mm-hmm. uh, and looking for anything they can to try and promote that as they see it. Yeah. I, I think it goes back to making sure your experts, who you get this information from, really are experts. I'm thinking right now about how a Dan Barker has that lady who's done some writing for I think Barbara Walker is her name. Who's that? Oh, uh, yes. Yeah, she's an expert on knitting, but when she gives yeah. historical stuff, it's nonsense. Absolutely, absolutely. She was the earlier version of a Kairos. That's mm-hmm. That's what she was. Um, you know, I've been looking over some of these other things, uh, examples of things I looked into, and uh-huh. uh, i share a couple of funnier ones here in sure. moment as, as we're rounding off. One of my favorites here, I'm just looking at right now, the naked statue of George Washington. You remember reading about that one? Actually, I don't. <laughs> okay. All right. There's a statue of George Washington that uh, people, these conspiracy theorists, think has got something behind it. 
Uh, a couple of things unusual about it is, number one, Washington doesn't have a stitch of clothes on. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is, he looks like he's been training down at Gold's Gym. He's got a lot of <laughs> muscles on him. And he's sitting there, and he's pointing up in the air. And the conspiracy theorists say, oh, well, the reason he, he's made to look like that is because they were making him look like the Greek god Zeus. And also, they wanted to invoke the image of Baphomet, the, the satanic goat god. And so this is some kind of sign that, you know, the American government is into, you know, satanic conspiracies and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So this statue was, you know, put in the Smithsonian. And it's, and to this day, you'll see people who say it's part of some conspiracy. Uh, a couple of problems with that is Baphomet, the, the goat god, this was supposedly meant to inspire, uh, wasn't depicted as related to these issues until the 19th century. And that's long after mm-hmm. George Washington passed away. Mm-hmm. As far as him looking like the Greek god Zeus, well, you know, maybe that's, it was certainly made to make him look strong. But when the statue was brought over here uh, in 1832, it immediately attracted laughter more than anything else. And this is, again, another example we said earlier. Well, these people are, the New World Order is trying to fool people and changing their mind, they're not doing a very good job of it. Mm-hmm. And although the intention of the, the person who made it was to make him look a little like a classical Greek figure of Zeus, what ended up happening is American people looked at it and said, yeah, it's pretty crazy stuff. Yeah, it looks pretty stupid. Mm-hmm. And so one of the jokes that was going around was he's reaching in the air because he's trying to get his clothes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so you know, finally they put the statue uh, in the Smithsonian where no one was going to see it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, like, you know, again, if the Illuminati are really doing all this stuff, they're not doing a very good job at it. They're, they're just making a joke out of themselves. Yeah, when you're talking about that statue, one that also came to my mind, and, you know, some parents might want to cover their child's ears a little bit, is the uh, statue that's supposed to be at St. Peter underneath the Vatican and such. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I remember that, yes. Yep. Yeah, I think that's the, the, the one that looks like a um, it looks like a rooster, and Bart Ehrman got into a, a Kyrie S with that one. It Wasn't that the same one you're talking about? Yes. Yeah, going back and forth about that. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean those are real statues. There's certainly statues that look like that. They have they have a like a rooster combined with a, a phallic symbol. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know they're, they're just basically, I would I would say they're they're the ancient equivalent of like one of those uh, one of those joke statues you put on your desk that looks like Yoda or something like that. Mm-hmm. I mean it was just some kind of joke to make make something look like that. There was no. There's no you know, innate religious message, you know, or anything like that. It was just a, just something amusing to those to people at that time, but and it certainly had no connection whatsoever to you know, the Apostle Peter. You know, I, I think sometimes to quote the comedian, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. Uh, exactly, that's all <laughs> there is to it. Uh, similar to that, uh, in the same in the same spirit, like sometimes. Things are just what they appear to be. Mm-hmm. Another of my favorites was the idea that the city of Washington, D.C., if you look at a map of it, you'll see a bunch of pentagrams. Mm-hmm. And where this comes from is that if you've ever been to Washington, D.C., have you actually have you been there? Nope, I haven't. Okay, well, it's, it's a confusing place to drive around. It can be a mess. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are a lot of streets that are put on a diagonal as well as doing you know, the traditional horizontal and vertical. Mm-hmm. There are some streets that run diagonally. 
And from a certain perspective above, uh, if you draw a line around, you can make a pentagram out of some of those streets. Mm-hmm. And this idea that there was some kind of occult symbolism to that, that you know, they were maybe summoning a demon with this, with this pentagram that they put together. Mm-hmm. But, you know, when you when you look into it again, you find that there's really no connection that can be made uh, between the two, and there's certainly nothing. Uh, you know, because the pentagram has a break in it, you're not going to be able to capture a demon with it. That's what mm-hmm. you find when you look into the into the lore about it. Yeah. So, uh, what's what's the purpose going to be to putting a secret pentagram in the map of Washington D.C.? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just not going to serve any purpose, especially if there's a break in it. More in practical terms, you find you look into what experts on traffic say, and they say that diagonal streets like that are a very good idea for managing traffic. Mm. Uh, you know, there's no, there's no, nothing obscure about this. There's nothing occult about this. It's just mm-hmm. good highway engineering. Mm-hmm. When you encounter someone who's a conspiracy theorist, or who who is uh, asking about conspiracy theories, what are the main questions you always want to ask them? I think with, I haven't run into too many people like that. But what happens when I do that? You know, with in the case with Mark Fairley, I brought out some examples of why he was wrong, and I was simply ignored. Mm-hmm. Uh, I pretty quick when people like that write to me, and I point out some of these things, I they stop writing to me pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. So I would I would pick out some of the most obvious things <laughs> that are incorrect. And I would ask questions like, "Well, why isn't this why isn't this cigar just a cigar?" And they, you know, and things like, "What we've asked, why would the would the new world order want to go through all this trouble just to transmit a message to each other?" Mm-hmm. You know, you know, why you know, why isn't this simply harmless? What is what is what is the purpose of the new world order doing all these things? And yeah, I have ne- I have never gotten a second round of answers from someone I've done that to. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think that they're prepared in any way for another set of answers, and well, for good reason. There is no other set of answers you can provide. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's there's no there's no second level for them to go to. Mm-hmm. You and I also know that sadly we've had a failure to educate the church in our world today, and if leaders like John MacArthur are pushing this uh, to to Babylon's his stop nonsense, where it can go all the way up to the top in many cases. What would you say to the average Christian who hasn't really learned about working through these issues and such if they were starting to get panicky about this kind of thing? Well, what I've, I've had a couple of instances like that, and I've found that it's been helpful to just you know specifically address a couple of examples in depth and mm-hmm. to show that when you look more in depth into these things, they don't work out uh, as well as you think they do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we obviously can't cover every single thing everyone brings up out there. Right. But I think I think if we just so hey, you know, I looked into this specific issue and here's what I found. That that plants the seed of doubt. Right. And and gets them to think about the rest of them. And sometimes you know, the people who write you and I are not going to have any more time to look into this than we are. Right. But if they know that we've looked into it some and found problems, then that will encourage them to think less highly of of what they've read in these conspiracy theories, and and give it less credence. 
Yeah, I think it's pretty interesting. That's the same strategy that I use, and I'm guessing you could very well use if, say, Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses knock on my door. What I want to do is build up the Bible, and then plant what Greg Coker would say is a, a rock in their shoe, a pebble in their shoe. Give them a little seed of doubt about their sources, because if you don't do that, if you have a Jehovah's Witness come to you, well, they're just going to write back to the watchtower and get another answer, and it'll be a bogus answer, but it'll convince them because, hey, you know, Watchtower is God's organization. But if you can show them they need to seriously question the credibility of a Watchtower, it's not going to work as well for them. No, no, it's not. It's, it, you, have to, well, you have to keep it short and to the point, and you have to make it easy to understand. And then, right. you know, I've, I've selected some examples while we've been talking here because, you know, in some cases, because they're memorable. I mean, a lot, I'll bet you everyone who's listening right now is going to remember that story about a naked Washington statue. Right. <laughs> That's going to stay with them for a long time. I mean, there's many more examples I could have pulled up here, but you know, I mean, you know, we need to come up with like short and sweet things that will get the process started for people who do want to look for a further, or we'll plant that seed of question or doubt for those who don't have the time or the ability to look further. Yeah. And so, related to that, I mean, what kind of steps can we take in the church at large to help increase our capability to handle these kinds of questions and, in essence, just better educate the church? I wish there were a simple answer to that one, yeah. but uh, it's been showing that there isn't. I mean, uh, you and I both know well enough, and I'm sure many of our Listen, many of your listeners know how hard it is just to get the church to even speak about apologetics, mm-hmm. let alone something like you know conspiracies and or uh, you know, dangerous claims. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I've I've said before uh, that about some pastors, you cannot get them out of the pulpit. You could have them stand in the pulpit. You could plant TNT around the pulpit. You could blow them into the air sky high and they'd be hanging onto the pulpit all the way up and all the way back down. You just can't get them away from that pulpit. Right. Uh, and if, if that's the condition they're in, how are you going to get a chance to discuss anything like this? Well, right. you might be able to get in some kind of special teaching on a Sunday night. You might be able to talk about it in Sunday school. Yeah, but, but how much time do you have? How much time are people going to take to listen to you when you talk about things like this? especially if they've never heard it before. I mean, there are still people, plenty of people who have never heard things like this before. And they're going to wonder why you're even making a fuss. I mean, let's just get back to, get back to the homiletic teaching, please. We don't have time for this. It's not until, there, you know, I think you said something like this earlier, it's not until the son or daughter comes home from college and says, hey, I've got a problem I can't believe anymore. Yeah. But by then, it's too late. Mm-hmm. It's, it's an open question as to how, you know, how much we can implement a proactive program on things like this. Mm-hmm. Uh, the most we can do is, is hope that you know, we, we have a leader in the, whatever church we're attending who is mm-hmm. willing to let some of this be spread around. Mm-hmm. In the alternative, at the very least, you might find some way to put you know, books in a church library that would refer, refer, refer to materials like this. Or you might might be able to compose a bibliography and just be able to pass that out or have that available and say, hey, if you ever run into any claims like this, here's some stuff that addresses it. Yeah. I, I'm remembering, and this is, so that's even on your blog spot, the Tecton Ticker, and such, right. Church's Basketball Jones, a story that 
I, I remember us. It was the first birthday after Allie and I got married. My birthday. We were back in Knoxville visiting my family, and we went back to my old home church there, which is a natural thing to do when you're back in town. And they started talking about how they had raised up $2 million for ministry. Where? $2 million. This is really impressive. What's this ministry going to? And found out the Ministry of Basketball to build a basketball court of sorts to minister to the people in the area. And I'm sitting there, you know, and I'm dumbfounded. I mean, I know my math well enough. I say, give me 1% of this, 20,000, which is what that would be. I would go to town doing more apologetics material and such. But I could do, you would be doing the exact same thing. And I am pretty convinced you and I would have a whole lot more effect than a basketball ministry would have. Now, if this was a big, big church and they had a lot of money, they could invest in many projects, maybe. But the church was a small church. And now, to be fair, they were supporting another student in seminary. But I was a student in seminary at the time. I sure wasn't getting any support. And I remember we tried to talk to the associate pastor about it. And Allie made some very pointed remarks about it. says, oh, well, we're just, you know, uh, running out of money and don't have much for food and things like that. It says, oh, and there wasn't much anything said. We left. We've never looked back. But that's the mm-hmm. kind of thing that, that that's going on in our church. That we're spending our resources on things that won't produce as much fruit. No, no. It's, you know, it produces, I, I guess you could say it produces, um, I don't want to say, it produces big watermelons. Mm-hmm. Uh, but watermelons are mostly water. Yeah. You're not producing stuff that's going to keep people, uh, you know, that's nutritious and and it's going to keep people uh, you know, supplied in, you know, with safety for their faith. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're producing stuff that keeps people entertained. Yeah. Uh, and uh, that, that's until that attitude is changed. And I don't know if it's going to be changed anytime soon. I just don't see much that can be done except in whatever small corner we can to those who are willing to listen. Um, you know, these days I, I attend a, a I attend a church that's mostly populated by Indonesian immigrants here in America, mm-hmm. and they are they are so willing and wanting to hear more about apologetics. I mean, yeah, yeah. they they do the traditional sermons, but you know, when I tell them what's going on, I, I every eye is on what I say is mm-hmm. on me when I'm speaking about things like that. Yeah, uh, there's a recognition that there's an importance to that. Yeah, um, it's 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 kind of kind of it kind of puts people to shame in, in like when they've got Joel Osteen on the television set. Yeah, I think I've told you about the church we ended up going to in Knoxville, and that we left just because we moved here. And the only thing that was really keeping us so much in Knoxville was we actually loved our church that much. And this was a church, and it was in the Lutheran tradition and very much intellectual, so that during the service. If you had a question about something that was said or any other kind of question at all, they had a number, and you could text in a question to that number, and the pastor would come out at the end, or the intern pastor, if he was the one speaking, and he would answer your question. And they even did have a class where they did teach some apologetics there about the origins of Christianity, how we got the Bible, and things like that. And when I came along... They decided to actually do something with me, so much so that 
I write for curriculum. Still this day, they have a weekly small group material going on. I write out the material for them. They say, here's what the, the message is that we're going to be te- speaking about. Can you write up something with this? Sure can. And send it off to them, and they use it, and it all works out very well. Which I, I think that's also another interesting contrast that normally I'm, I hate to say it, but I think if someone like you or I goes to a church and shows some interest in apologetics to many pastors, I'm afraid many pastors will start not thinking about the benefits to the flock, but thinking, this is someone who knows more than I do on this. He could steal my thunder here. I, I hate to think that that's what some of them are thinking, but sometimes I have to think well. that's what they're thinking. Uh, I would not. I would not think that automatically, but I've I've seen that at work, mm-hmm. and I know I knew of an example. I won't speak to specifics, but I knew of an example where that was at work because that was precisely the way that the pastor acted around other people as well, not just mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. So, uh, in the end, we're fighting. We're, you know, we're fighting an, up, an uphill battle in many ways, but it's uh, there's always going to be new things coming out and. This, yeah, we spoke earlier about Donald Trump as the latest target of some speculation. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm looking at an example of how some of them tried to model him into 666. Yeah. And um, one of the things they can do, this is an example of how the, the data is manipulated. And the whole idea is you have to match his name to a number. Well, you just they just keep playing with variants on his name, like Donald J. Trump, DJ Trump, Don mm-hmm. Trump, Don yeah. Donald John Trump. Yeah. And then they go... Pulling up his German name, Donald John Trump, and you know, just or his Scottish name, Domnall J. Trump. You know, mm-hmm. just keep just keep going until you find something that adds up to six six six, or adds up to some multiple of six six six, or that adds up to one plus five equals six. You just keep just you just keep playing with the data, mm-hmm. and that is what someone like Jonathan Kahn is also adept at doing, which is uh, manipulating the data to try and find. Uh, something that works. Now, this is a good thing to close out with, too. Uh, I told you I've been reading his new book, The Paradigm. Have you seen anything about that yet? No, I haven't yet, Sri. Okay, well, I'm not going to say too much because I, I did an assignment for it about it. But let me tell you what this one's about. Okay. okay. According to uh, Jonathan Kahn, mm-hmm. some of the modern political leaders, starting with Bill Clinton, are, are, and Hillary Clinton are a reenactment, historical reenactment of Ahab and Jezebel. Okay. And the, some of the things that they have been going through lately, uh, and, and uh, Donald Trump is a parallel to Jehu. And uh, so yeah, it's, not quite, it's not quite clear what Khan's point is in saying all this because he is very adept at trying to find parallels between past events of. Um, you know, further back and of more recent uh, events. Parallelomania. Yeah, parallelomania is what it is. But when it comes to predicting the future, all of a sudden he puts on the brakes. Right. And he just makes vague charges about, like, judgment coming and all. And, you know, someone like Daniel would have been ashamed to have been that vague about the future. Mm-hmm. Um, and without, without any apologies, he also puts himself in the position of Elijah. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we are going to continue to see this thing kind of happen, and it's going to continue to happen as long as someone like Jonathan Kahn is given pride of place in our churches, and mm-hmm. as long as we continue to believe that he has something worthwhile to say. Right. Uh, in my thought, someone like Kahn, or someone even, 
I'm sorry, but John MacArthur for promoting stuff like Alexander Hislop. Mm-hmm. I think they need to be called to account for doing stuff like that. And they are in a position of leadership, and they're promoting patent falsehoods. And once someone like MacArthur promotes someone like Hislop, more, yeah, more falsehood follows. Mm-hmm. I think another one you did that with was Erwin Lutzer with his material on Hitler. Yeah, now that wasn't a conspiracy theory kind of thing. Yeah. Well, actually it was in a way because you know, Lutzer was promoting the idea that Hitler was, was uh, inspired by occultism, mm-hmm. which is entirely false. Yeah. Uh, and you know, I, I, I wrote to one of Lutzer's people about that and gave him great details from the scholars of Hitler about why that was wrong. And their response was, well, you know, uh, I'm sure you're entitled to opinion, but here's the here's the point that he's that Lutzer is trying to make. It's like yeah. that's exactly the same thing again and again. Like, oh, but you know, we're trying to make the point, so we don't have to be factually correct. Mm-hmm. That's the point at which you need to exactly when you need to be factually correct. Yeah. Now, of course, we could say that if you got in touch with someone like, say, John MacArthur, for instance, and you said, "Hey, this Hislop stuff is nonsense," and he said, oh, let me look into that. And he came back and he looked at it and said, hey, you're right. You know what? I'm going to put up a statement renouncing that and apologizing for it. Then we say, fine. And we move on with that, right? Yeah. And that's what needs to be done. Yeah. Uh, but I have, I have not seen any effort made. To, you know, I, I have not yet gone to confronting someone like uh, MacArthur over mm-hmm. promoting his law. But eventually yeah. I need to. Yeah. Someone needs to. Yeah. And you were talking about this reenactment thing. I, I was thinking about someone say, wait, wait, JP, you've said repeatedly on your site, Phil, that Jesus often reenacted what the prophets and such did. So, and what's the big deal about reenactment then? Uh, the process itself is not a big deal, but if you're going to claim the authority to do that, yeah. you had better be a prophet yourself, and mm-hmm. you had better be prepared to face up to the responsibility. Yeah. I mean, yeah, if you're uh, if you're up to the Apostle Paul presenting, you know, certain events as reenactments, or if you're one of the gospel authors, okay, yeah, these guys ended up in the canon of Scripture. Are you uh, planning to end up in the canon of Scripture somewhere? Right. This is a huge responsibility, uh, and I don't think Jonathan Kahn is up to it, especially the way, and I'm not going to talk about that specifically because that's going to be coming out, but the way that he manipulates the data uh, in order to make these parallels, the parallel mania he engages in, that's not the kind of thing that encourages you to think that he's an actual prophet. Mm-hmm. And I think it's noteworthy that, as you said, he, he'll make all these statements, but when it comes to the implications of his statements about what this means for the future, you seem to indicate he does put the brakes on. It's kind of like all these people on YouTube who make all these videos about all this evidence showing the rapture, and they say, but, but I'm not setting a date. I'm not setting a date, and I'm saying... You might not be setting an official date, but you're sure enough making a claim like that, and you need to be called to account for it. Yes, yeah. That's what they don't want to hear. They don't want to be called to account. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a responsibility that goes with having a platform. Mm-hmm. You and I are, are keenly aware of that. Yeah. Uh, we have to, we have to, if people are listening to what we say, and we have to you know, be aware that that's what's happening. Yeah. So we feel like we have a responsibility. Mm-hmm. Uh, to, to make sure everything is correct. Again, that doesn't mean we don't make mistakes. Yeah. It just means when we do make them, <laughs> we correct them. Yeah. I remember there was a time that you posted something on Theology Web about 
how someone got from Aristotle the idea that the Earth was flat. And I said, oh, JP, I read Aristotle. And so he didn't say that. He just, you know, I said, you got any sources, any quotes? And so I sent you some quotes. That was that. Never heard that one yeah. again. Because, I mean, once you, once you get the truth, if you don't change your mind on it, then it shows you're not someone who really cares about the truth. Yeah. Uh, you have you had an ideology in mind first before anything else. Mm-hmm. Which, again, is kind of similar to something we start the show with, mythicism. Yep. So, I think we've accomplished a lot here today. Yeah, I think we have. I, honestly, I thought we'd spend a lot more time on some of these theories. The thing is, they're just so nonsense. You just throw out a few quick facts, and a lot of it just gets shut down easily. <laughs> yep, that's it. Well, JP, I'd like to thank you for coming on. Do you have a blog, a website, an email, a way people can get in touch with you if they want to find out more? Uh, yeah, of course, tectonics.org is, is uh, the main website, T-E-K-T-O-N-I-C-S dot O-R-G. Mm-hmm. My email is jphold at att dot net. Uh-huh. And do you have any final message you'd like to leave today for the Deeper Waters audience? Um, no, just uh, keep listening. Uh, this is a great show, and I'm not saying that, you know, just just uh, you know, for no reason. I mean, you've done excellent work. And it seems to me, I seem to remember I, there was this guy named Nick Peters. Well, was back in 2001. I I had him write an article for my website. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and look yep. where you're at now. <laughs> yep. And uh, I think you should point out you also don't say it just because of bias. No, no, not at all. Yep. Not at all. Yeah, Absolutely. You've done, you've done good work, uh, and I appreciate that very much. Yeah, and I've tried to follow your suit, and that's why, for the most part, I try to get the best scholars I can on a topic here, or people who I think are real authorities, or ones that are just coming up and I want to promote their work, because, you know, I remember someone promoted my work when I was coming up. Yeah, well, good. Uh, I wish you well next week with Richard Bauckham mm-hmm. again. That sounds excellent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'd like to uh, remind everyone that, yes, Richard Balkum is our guest next week talking about Jesus and the eyewitnesses. For now, I'm Nick Peters, and I am signing off. <laughs> <laughs>